I shared last week that uh, I was going to be uh, continuing on the theme of It Is Finished, and uh, I'm going to start that today. Uh, this is actually the second message in the series, It Is Finished. Last week, The Four Cups of Passover was the beginning of that series. How many of you enjoyed that message last week, The Four Cups of Passover? Yeah, let's give the Holy Spirit a round of applause. He dropped that in my heart. Amen. And I believe that as I unpack this series, now today I'm going to lay down some uh, background and I'm going to set the stage and I'm going to throw you a couple of nuggets, but uh, God has already given me a bit of a preview of what's going to uh, happen in the next couple of weeks, and I, I'm telling you, I am excited. I am already looking forward to preaching what God put on my heart next week, and even the week after that. So we've got a couple of, uh, well, not a couple. We are going to unpack some incredible gems from these words. It is finished. Three simple words, but they were like the death toll to the kingdom of darkness. Amen. Absolutely. So, to get everything in a perspective, let's start with John chapter 19. I read this scripture last week. John chapter 19, verse 28 to 30. John had just finished uh, telling how Jesus looked down from the cross, and he said to Jesus, uh, he said to uh, Mary, his mother, as he looked at John, and he says, uh, A woman, behold your son. And he says to John, Behold your mother. And we know from history, from that point on, John, the apostle of love, who had a great understanding of love and relationship, we know that because it comes out in his gospel it comes out in his three epistles that he wrote to the churches. And uh, Jesus said, hey, I want you to look after my biological, my natural mother. And history tells us that John did exactly that. And that Mary ended up living with John towards her final days in uh, 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 Asia Minor. But right after Jesus has this conversation from the cross, John picks up from verse 28, and he says, later. Right after that was established, John then says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, too often, we make the misjudgment of looking at this phrase, it is finished, that Jesus was letting everyone know that he's about to die. I think it would 
became very obvious when Jesus died, but his words, it is finished, was not a signal to let people know, okay, uh, in five seconds now, I'm going to give up the ghost. This wasn't uh, his call for the curtain to come down. No, he was making a theological statement. He was presenting a truth. He was making a pronouncement. You see, if we start at the beginning of this passage, it says, knowing that everything had now been finished. Jesus is talking about events, things that are happening. And knowing that the conclusion of everything was coming to its totality, he says, I'm thirsty. He drinks, and uh, the point I'm about to make goes back to last week from the third cup of the Passover, the cup of redemption. This is the cup that the disciples could not drink. This is the cup that only the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, could drink. This was the third time he now drank from the cup of the fruit of the vine, wine gone bitter. And he drinks this third cup, and having completed the Passover step of the third cup of redemption, he says, it's finished. Coincidentally, because it's finished, he left the scene. There was no other reason for him to remain alive. His death completed the action and the events that he came to set into motion. You see, uh, we see letter A, that this verse starts with knowing that everything had now finished. And then he says, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. I don't know how many of you watched the news or saw in the news, Mike Tyson got on a plane uh, this week. How many of you know Mike Tyson got on a plane this week? And some guy was a little bit inebriated, and he took a selfie with Mike Tyson. Mike was okay with that. He was sitting behind Mike, and he was uh, continuing to talk, and for a while, Mike Tyson was okay with it, but finally... The guy must have crossed a line, and something got triggered in Mike, and suddenly Mike went from Mike the passenger to Mike Tyson the boxer. And he turns around, and he starts laying into this guy, and you see the guy afterwards all beat up and bloodied and bruised and looking really sorry for himself. At the end of a heavyweight champion, the bell goes off and everybody knows it's finished. At the uh, end of that short little bout, this guy knew it was finished and he was worse off for the wear. Can I get an agreement? Absolutely. When Jesus said it is finished, this is a Greek word and it means teleo which means it is completed, it is accomplished, it has been executed, it is concluded, and there is a discharge of, from the debt that was owed. Very interesting. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm about to die, here we go, this is the grand finale. It is finished! Ah. Uh. 
You know, like a real fake death ending on a cheesy movie. No, Jesus was making in his death a statement. It's completed. It's accomplished. It's been executed. I've concluded it. I have discharged a great debt. Well, if it's concluded, it, bear, it brings to question what is concluded. And so with that, I want to take you to the book of Genesis into the Garden of Gethsemane. My title this morning is Jesus Finished What God Started. Jesus Finished What God Started. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we just had uh, <clears throat> the fall of humanity. Here's Adam and Eve. They're put on earth as title holders. They are God's representatives, God's ambassadors. And God said, I've put everything under your control. And here's Adam, God's vice regent, God's representative, God's man on earth. Do you know Adam was set up as a prince, as a ruler? And he was meant to guard. In the Hebrew, the word tend the garden actually means to guard over it. Very interesting. He was given authority. He was given rulership. And all the animals and all the birds and all the uh, sea life was subject to the first man. God didn't just create a man and uh, put him here on earth. God created a reflection of who he is. The first man was meant to have authority. He was meant to be regal. He was meant to be incredible. He was meant to have governing power. He was created in the image that God is. He was created in the likeness of him. Amen, absolutely. So Adam and Eve weren't just passengers. They weren't just citizens. They weren't just living beings that now had an opportunity to live in the garden. No, they were God's masterpiece. They were fashioned in his image, and he gave them authority. He gave them likeness with his own personality. David says in Psalm 8, as he reflects on this, he said, what is man? That even though you created him lower than angels, yet you crowned him with glory. When you study the word glory throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the glory of God, for example, always speaks of the greatness of who God is, his character, his personality. The glory of God is always speaking of the image, the status, the state, the character, the nature of who God is. And so David says, what is man that you crowned him with glory? What is man that you put your statehood on him? That you put your personality in him? That you dressed him with your character? That you put a touch of your unique divine essence inside of man? What is man that he would carry the glory of God? We were crowned. We were ordained. We were suited up. 
to be like God. He goes on to say, and you crowned him with glory and honor. Honor, again, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, speaks of position. It speaks of power that is given because of the position. In other words, authority, status. You have a token of control. And we know that Adam had a token of control because God said it in Genesis chapter 2 that he has put all those things under Adam's control. And David finishes Psalm 8 by saying, you've made the birds of the air, the, the, the fish of the sea, and the mammals of the earth to be under the token of his control. You see, when God created Adam... He made him more than able to be able to face someone who would challenge him for his reign, for his token of control, challenge him for his governorship. Well, that someone came knocking. And Adam and Eve, for a moment, forgot who they are. You see, we sing this song, I believe I am who you say I am. The reason why it's important to believe you are who he says you are is because the moment you forget who you are, the devil will tell you a lie. Come on. That's why it's so important that we know who we are in Jesus Christ, that we know our sonship. And so here's Adam and Eve, and the devil says, eh, I hear you're not allowed to eat of any of the fruit of the trees. And he exaggerates. And Eve says, no, uh, uh, just that one tree. And uh, the devil starts to debate back and forth with her. He says, so you can't even touch it? She said, no, we're not allowed to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, how many of you remember back when you were a kid and life was a a simple life. How many of you remember that? How many of you remember where the time before you had enough knowledge to get into too much trouble? Right? How many of you would like to go back to that time before your brain and your mind and your experience became adulterated with some of the knowledge you've picked up along the way. Yeah. If I was 30 pounds lighter, I'd jump two feet in the air so that I'd be raising my feet together with my arms. God specifically warned Adam and Eve, you can live in the knowledge of good, which they already had. They weren't dumbbells, they were intelligent. They were incredibly intelligent, but at this point, all they knew was the knowledge of good. I'm telling you right now, if I have the choice to live with all the knowledge I have today or to go back and just live under the divine good knowledge of God, I'm out of here. I, I, I'm going back, you see. And so God says, don't. It's to your advantage not to. And the devil came and brought a different perspective. You see, when you read the word of God, it is the truth. 
You have the option to believe it is the truth. I say the option because the devil will always challenge the word of God and try to give you a different perspective. You see, what he did back in the garden, he is still doing today, and he does it with each and every one of us every second of the day, and it's so common it seems normal. He wants to give us a philosophy that is contrary to the theology of the knowledge of good. And so he says to Adam and Eve, he says, come on. The reason why God doesn't want you to eat from the knowledge of good and evil is because he knows you will be like him. Duh, God already made Adam and Eve in his likeness. They allowed their emotions to be hooked with an offense. They believed a lie and became offended. Do you know that a good 70% of the offenses we take are wrong perceptions of a person's intention? And so we believe a lie and emotionally take the bait and get offended in our emotions. When something's lodged in your emotions, it's a lot harder to get it out of your emotions than it is to get out of your head. Here, I'll give you an example. When the Hebrews came out of Egypt, intellectually, uh, not with knowledge, they knew we are no longer slaves in Egypt. But it was very hard to get the knowledge of being lowly and second-minded out of their emotions. And they continued to think and reason and act as slaves. You see, when they came to the promised land, God had filled their head with all the promises that were waiting for them. But they looked at the promised land through the eyes of slaves and they saw the giants and they said, oh no, we were slaves under the Egyptians, we're going to be slaves under the giants. You see, it's easier to change your thought than your emotions. They reasoned out of fear. They saw the giants, and I know they reasoned out of fear because they said, we are as grasshoppers in their sight. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. Here's a good question. How did they look through giants' eyes to see what the giants saw when they looked at them? You know what happens? We end up looking through the devil's eyes, and he will always sell us a bill of baloney. Everybody repeat after me, a bill of baloney. <laughs> now, there's a secular term I could use that's a little bit more crass, and we won't use it, so we'll say a bill of baloney. Go on, say it to someone. Turn to someone. That's a bill of baloney. You have to understand that the devil is always marketing a bill of baloney. And so he's going to try to lie to you emotionally. He's going to try to lie to your senses. He's going to lie to your circumstances so that he could stitch up your emotions. And when we believe it emotionally, it's set for a very long time inside of us. <coughs> so here we are. 
We're in Genesis chapter 3. We're in the middle of the garden. Adam and Eve just conceded or were seduced to believe the devil's lie. Here was God's truth. Here's the devil's lie. They allowed it to affect them emotionally. They took offense without going back to God and questioning God. And they believed the devil. Do you know that what you believe, whatever you believe, whether whatever you believe, you believe in the laws of aerodynamics, you become subject to it. When you believe that planes can fly, you become subject to the mindset that says, if I go on this winged metal huge machine that weighs tons and tons and tons, it will actually fly. You see, what you submit your mind to, you will be subject to. Sometimes for good, sometimes for evil. What we believe, what we choose to believe in, we give it a level of authority. We give it a level of control in our lives. And so when we believe the devil's bill of baloney, we give it a level of control over our lives. Everybody repeat after me. I don't want to believe the lies of hell when I can live in the realities of heaven. Come on now. Absolutely. Amen. Listen, that simple phrase determines whether you're going to live a victorious Christian life or a beat up Christian life. I got news for you. Uh, I'm not here to live a beat up Christian life. I'm here to live the victorious life that Jesus died and rose so that I can experience. How many people do I have in agreement here this morning? Yeah, give the Lord a shout. <clears throat> so Adam and Eve just believe Satan's lies and now they are subject to Satan's lies. And the whole human race has been subject to the lies of the kingdom of demons ever since that moment in time. That's why when God speaks the truth, you got to make sure that you don't allow some peanut from the gallery of hell to speak to you in a contrary way so that you get out of agreement with God's truth and come into an agreement with some demon's lies. Hello now. Come on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what you believe in, you give it authority to have influence over your life. And so here Adam and Eve had submitted to the lies of the devil they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> How many know that when you see something, you can't unsee it? When they saw the knowledge of evil, that's something that humanity has not been able to erase. Okay? And so God comes in and he starts to speak to the serpent and he curses the serpent. In verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now that first part of the verse is a general statement. The kingdom of demons will bite at the heels of humanity. That's what God is saying. I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your seed and her seed. The generations of mankind to come will constantly be harassed by the present existing hordes of fallen angels, demons. He then goes on to say, now he changes the face. He says, there will be enmity between your seed and her seed, okay? And now he becomes specific and he says, he shall bruise your head. So in the first part of this statement, God is saying, here's a reality. Because of what just happened, you've opened the door and let the dogs out, and now the kingdom of darkness will forever be nipping at the heels of humanity. That's stage one. But stage two, I have a counter to what you have done, and we're going to get more specific, God was saying, and in the verse, he transitions from the general realm of demons and the general realm of the history of humanity, and he points to a single seed. And he says, he will bruise your head. And he's talking to Satan. And he says, he will bruise your head. Because when the head of Satan is bruised, being the head of the kingdom of darkness, all of the kingdom of darkness suffers the consequences. Hello, are you with me? Absolutely. Just like Satan bruised the head of humanity, he, he bruised Adam and Eve all of humanity has suffered the consequences of that defeat and that fall. So God now says, he, he's talking about the woman's seed in general, but now he talks about the seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, to, be, to, to break this down even more, God was speaking about the promised seed and he will go one-on-one -on -one with Satan and he will beat him. The battle of the heavyweights was announced in the garden, not Madison Square Garden, but the battle of the heavyweights was announced in the garden 4,000 years in advance. This was gonna be the showdown of the throwdown in the hometown of humanity. Jesus was going to show up and go mano a mano with the king of darkness, and there was going to be a battle. God is prophesying this in the garden. In the next few verses, God walks out of the garden, and Adam and Eve never enter the garden again. But after the catastrophe of Adam's failure, God speaks a prophetic word of hope. God speaks a prophetic word of life. God speaks a prophetic word of redemption before he makes his exit. He says, this is a mess, and a lot of people are going to be hurt. But I'm telling you right now, there is going to be a showdown, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of you personally. Satan. Come on, if you believe it, give the Lord a shout. You see, this verse is the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, this verse is the proto-evangelium 
That means the very first announcement of the gospel. This was the very first declaration of the good news that the kingdom of God was going to have a showdown with the kingdom of darkness. Pretty cool, isn't it? I want you to look at this verse again because some truths are hidden in here that are very important. Too often, you know, uh, we, we, we do our quick little Bible studies and we, we gloss over nuggets, gems of gold. Number one, he says, because it's the seed of a woman, this seed who's going to crush the devil's head has to be human. Now, I want you to understand something. The Hebrews... The scribes, the teachers of the law, had these words, and they understood this was the first messianic prophecy. God didn't say the seed of Adam and Eve. He said the seed of the woman. We knew it was going to be a human, but we knew this succeed, this seed would be unique in that it wouldn't be the normal seed of a man and a woman. Therefore, there would have to be some kind of divine intervention. It's not the seed of Adam and Eve. It's the seed of Eve. Well, you can't have a seed unless it's fertilized. Even in nature, when plants flower, when fruit trees flower, unless they are impregnated, unless they receive uh, uh, an, uh, another seed, it's not fertilized. It doesn't germinate. This seed will be unique in that even though it will be human, there's going to have to be a divine intervention because there's only the seed of the woman. And divinity is going to have to have its hand in this. And number three, the woman's seed will need to be fertilized supernaturally because only someone supernaturally could eat, uh, defeat the head of the kingdom of darkness. So right here in this passage, God is, this is already the first prophetic utterance about Yeshua, the Christ, the Messiah. And the scribes, the teachers of the law had access to this. Do you understand that from a Hebrew perspective, when God talked to Abraham, he always spoke and he speaks from the male perspective and he says, through your seed, Abraham. And so the Hebrews understood that when God made this statement that the woman's seed would go head to head with the serpents, uh, with Satan, that this was out of what one would call natural order. And they understood that this Messiah somehow was going to be human and somehow he was going to be God. And so in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, when Isaiah starts to prophesy under the Holy Spirit regarding this announcement from the Garden of Eden, he says, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. 
and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You see, the Spirit of God is prophesying through Isaiah the same thing that the Spirit of God spoke through the Father in the garden. It will be the seed of the woman, but there's going to be supernatural intervention because it's not the seed of a woman and a man or a man and a woman. It is the seed of the woman, and this seed will have supernatural power and ability to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, after Mary uh, had conceived, Joseph got a, got a dream. And an angel spoke to him in the dream. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You have the seed of the woman and the impregnation from the Holy Spirit. Son of man, son of God. For unto you will be born a child, a human. A son will be given. He will be known as wonderful, counselor, mighty God everlasting father pretty cool stuff yeah pretty cool stuff she shall give birth to a son and you are to give him the name jesus because he will save his people from sin in galatians chapter 4 verse 4 we have another uh, evidence of this or affirmation it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. A woman's seed, but God's intervention. Okay, Galatians 4.4. 4. Everybody say Galatians 4.4. 4. God sent his son born of a woman. Son of man, son of God. When we say son of man, it's a son of human entity. And so he was man, he was human, yet he was God. Now, this verse in Galatians chapter 4, 4 holds a lot more truth inside of it, especially the verses that follow. And so we're going to extrapolate, we're going to expand, we're going to pull this verse apart because the more you pull the Word of God apart, the more nuggets of truth, revelations come screaming out of the Word of God. Thank you. I'm so glad you came. Who was that? Galen? Was that you? <laughs> You can come back next week. <laughs> what was that you said again, Galen? Are there any more in the house? <laughs> yeah. Preach it, Pastor. All right. So let's unpack Galatians chapter 4 and some of the following verses. We're going to look at this from a different perspective. We just saw how this verse confirms what God said in the garden. We saw how Matthew 1.20 confirms what God said in the garden. We see how Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 confirms, agree with, supports what God said in the garden. 
We just saw how Galatians 4.4 backs this up, but now we're going to look at Galatians 4.4 from a completely different perspective. And we're going to extrapolate some really cool stuff. So follow me as we read this. In Galatians chapter 4, we're going to read it again, and then we're going to read verse 5. But now we're going to put the emphasis on the first part of the verse. But when the set time had fully come. Was that there before? Galatians 4.4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Now we're looking at it again. Now the emphasis is on, but when the set time had fully come. God was waiting for a particular time in period. A, a particular time period, shall I say. God was waiting. He made an announcement in the garden, but he was waiting for a particular time period. When the time had fully come, the timing was crucial. How many of you know timing is crucial in everything? Right? You know, if you're going to be good at telling jokes, which I am not, timing is crucial uh, in everything. If you're going to be excellent in uh, as a batter in baseball, timing is crucial. If you're going to be a pitcher, if you're going to be a quarterback, if you're going to be a receiver, but anything you do in life, timing is critical. How many of you know that if for your first month at a new job, you, were, uh, you show up 15 minutes late every day. How many of you know that you're going to find out real quick? Timing is critical. All right? Timing is critical. When the time set had fully come, God was waiting for a particular time period. God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. So when the time was right, God sent his son. He could have brought Jesus into the earth at any given time. But there was a particular time that God was waiting for. And we see that that time period was under the law. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the law. So hang on a second. What we're seeing here in Galatians, Paul is saying that God chose a specific time and the time period that the son would come would be under the law, but he's coming to redeem us from the law. So he's going to be a transition from the law to a whole new time period. How many of you can see that in the scriptures? All right. So he says, uh, why is he going to do it? He is going to redeem them from under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is the benefit of everyone who is redeemed. We are adopted as sons of God. You see, here's the bottom line. And guys, if you would put what I highlighted in yellow up on the screen. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was declaring the end of a dispensation. He was declaring the end of a season. He was declaring the end of a time period. The period of the law, we were slaves. We were in bondage both 
to sin and we were in bondage to Satan. Under the law, you can only be a sinner. Did you know that? Under the law, you can only be a sinner. The whole purpose of the law is to show us sin. The whole purpose of the law is to reveal God's perfect standard and how we will fall flat on our face every time. Under the law, you can only be a sinner, but under the blood of Jesus, we can only be sons. Amen. And so when Jesus is on the cross, he's shouting, a transition has come. It's complete. What my father started in the garden, I am finishing now on the cross. It is accomplished. The debt has been paid. And you know what the Bible says? As Jesus is marking the end of a period and introducing a new timeline that in the temple the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Wow. Wow. Why is that important? He goes on and he says in Galatians 4, next verse, verse 6 and verse 7. He came to redeem us from the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Stop. In verse uh, uh, 5, it says we receive the adoption to sonship. But God isn't satisfied with you just being adopted. You see, the first Adam, he made in his image. He made in his character. He made in his personality. There was a touch, a divinity on the first Adam. He was made in the likeness of God. He was not God. He will, man will never be God but he was made in the likeness of God. When you adopt a child, they don't necessarily receive your likeness. And so in verse 5, we see that he redeemed us, Jesus redeemed us from under the law, took us out of a time period that by nature made us sinners. You can't live under the law and be righteous. The law will show you you are not righteous. To live under the law, you can only be a sinner, but when you come out from under the law and you come under the blood of grace, you are adopted as a son. Now, how many of you are happy that you're adopted as a son? But Yeah, yeah, amen. Thank you, Donna. Do it again. Let them see how you do that. All right, let's imitate Donna for a second. There you go. <laughs> She, she's one of our cheerleaders here. Pastor Steve leads the worship from the platform, and Donna leads the worship from, the, from her seat there. Okay? All right. So we're adopted as sons, but verse 6 takes it and transitions it to an even better position. Because you are sons through adoption, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart. 
Do you understand what that means? The same way the first Adam was supernaturally made into the image of God. When you get born again into Christ, yes, you are adopted because you didn't start there. You are adopted, but he puts the spirit of his son inside of you so that you become a partaker of his divine nature. <laughs> Come on. This is pretty incredible stuff. It doesn't always get broken down. In fact, most times in the pulpit, we're running a race because we got 60 minutes for announcements, tithes, offerings, and, and worship, and the word. So in 20 minutes, it's hard to break this stuff down. That's why I'm the butcher who gives you prime cuts. All right? You come here to get good meat. Can I get an agreement? Absolutely. And so... When Jesus said it's finished, we came out from under the law where we were slaves to sin and slaves to the kingdom of darkness and we were adopted as sons. But God said, no, that's not where I want to finish this. I want to finish it where I started it and I want to bring man back, redeem him back to the position he had before the fall. And so when we are born again into Jesus Christ, we are adopted because we didn't start there, but then God breathes into our spirit just like he breathed into the first man who was made of clay. And we receive the spirit of Jesus. Whoa. How many of you ladies have a, have a locker? around your neck. Any ladies here have a locker around your neck? A, sorry, a locket. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Not a locker? I don't know. What you put inside is locked in. <laughs> what do you call it? A locket? All right. Any ladies here have a locket right now? With a picture of your husband? Or your... Why are you laughing? <laughs> or a picture of your kids? Or a picture of your puppy dog? What do you have? <laughs> this is not a point where everybody says amen. Okay? Not. Okay. Your dog. All right. Right there. Okay. When we say Jesus is in our heart, we as human beings, the devil's forever bringing the gospel down to its lowest common denominator. He's a thief. He doesn't want you to have information that will build you up. He doesn't want you to have information that will unlock things in your head so that you can start stepping up into who you're meant to be. He wants to crush this message and pervert it, fake news it, so that we get in minuscule little drops what God intended to be a revelation in our soul. 
And so from a church perspective and from human perspective, when we understand that Jesus comes into our heart, it's almost the concept of I have Jesus in a locket, okay? And so I have this little locket, my heart, and Jesus is in there. But the Word of God specifically and intentionally goes a lot deeper than that. You see, when Jesus said it's finished, he said it at the price of just having 39 lashes on his back. He didn't get 39 lashes on his back so that the church could all receive a little locket at Easter time with a picture of Jesus and his lamb. I don't know if he had a dog, but... Jesus didn't get 39 lashes and the beard plucked out of his face so that we could have a locket with Jesus on the inside. He didn't get nails in his hands. He wasn't crucified on that cross and died of asphyxiation because he wanted us to have a little picture somewhere in a medallion of our heart. No, he died so that we can be adopted into the family and God could breathe the very spirit of Jesus Christ inside of you and me. Yes. Amen. The spirit of Christ lives in me. Think about it. The spirit of Christ lives in you. No, he's not a ghost hiding inside of you, you know. No, he fills me. He thrills me. He comes out through me. He influences me. How many of you know every story you ever read in the New Testament when a demon was cast out of somebody, before he was cast out, that demon had great influence on that person. And that was just a fallen angel. It wasn't even Satan. It was just a fallen angel. It could have been a peon in Satan's rag team. And yet that demon would have influence. Church, I want you to understand that God sent Jesus at a particular time so that he could redeem us from that era. He could redeem us from that curse. He could redeem us from what was meant to be our life and bring us into a new experience. He adopts us and then the Father breathes the very spirit of Jesus Christ into our being. Yeah. That's why Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. Too often in Christianity, preachers have reduced the gospel to your sins are forgiven. I want to tell you that what God announced in the garden was a plan of redemption. And the plan of redemption is a plan that redeems us back to where we were before the fall. Come on now. Somebody get excited about what God has done. That's why a lot of Christians refer to themselves as, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, 
I was a sinner, and the grace of God has definitely saved me, but a lot happened in between there. I was a sinner. I got redeemed from under the law. I became adopted, but adoption wasn't good enough for my father because he's redeeming us back to our original status. And so like that hump of clay on the ground, he bends down at the cross and he breathes into the spirit of every person who comes to Jesus at the cross. And we don't just hold Jesus in a locket. The spirit of Christ influences us for the rest of our life. You see, there's something that the devil counts on. And he counts on this. Everything in the kingdom of God works by faith. And you can only have faith for what's been revealed to you. And so the enemy's forever trying to step on the revelation and dumb it down so that we're living out of as little revelation as possible because the more revelation we get, the more tribulation we're going to give to the kingdom of darkness. Hang on a second. Good preaching, Pastor Rob. You see, that's why teaching is important. You know, in the natural world, we get teaching so that we could get degrees, and it's a status thing, and it promotes us in job search. But with the word of God, revelation is the release of the insight into who we are destined to be. That's why revelation is important. That's why I run a Bible college. That's why I don't run a 60-minute service. I, I don't want to do a disservice to you by only giving you half a service. I'm not going to disservice you. I don't want you to get enough so that you know your sins are forgiven. I want you to get enough so that you will be a menace to the kingdom of darkness. I want you to get enough so that you will be a giant of faith. I want you to get enough so that you will believe you are who he says you are. Praise God. Yeah. Galatians 4, verse 6 to 7. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. I tell you all the time that the heart is the realm of the soul. The soul is the area that was fallen. Man's spirit became deadened, but his soul, the realm of his intellect and the realm of his emotions, became bombarded with the curse, with fear, with rejection, with negativity. The soul is what is fallen, and out of a fallen soul we sin. That's the heart. And God put the spirit of Jesus into our heart. I have received the new nature. If anyone is in Christ, the old nature has passed. Why? Because I'm not born of the first Adam anymore. 
I am born again of the last Adam and the spirit of that Christ lives in my heart. He has come into my nature and he has set me free from the law of sin and death. He set me free from bondage. He set me free from failure. He set me free from the kingdom of darkness. How can the spirit of Christ in me be subject to a kingdom of demons when the God of creation is the one living inside of you and me? Amen. Now, if you believe that, you stand up. Let the powers of darkness see you stand up and give the Lord a shout. Give him a praise offering. Amen. It says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son in our hearts. And that spirit calls out, Abba, Father, the spirit of Jesus in me constantly has expression through me. And the spirit of Jesus in you, if you can believe it, will start to have more and more expression through you. This is what the Bible says. That spirit of Jesus cries out and says, Daddy, Daddy. The spirit of Christ in you isn't meant to be hung up in a locket. It is meant to have influence over you and expression through you. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. When Jesus said, it's finished, he transitioned us from slaves to sons. We are no longer under the law, bound as slaves to sin, or bound to Satan himself. We are under the blood, set free from the power, the nature of sin, and the power of the kingdom of darkness. Wow. Never thought three words could have such an impact. It is finished. The time period of man struggling and being a sinner is over. For everyone who is redeemed, for everyone who says yes to Jesus Christ, for everyone who says, Jesus, let your blood wash me. Let it sanctify me. Cover me with your blood. Jesus, I welcome you into my heart for everyone who has it who has that redeeming experience. They are adopted, then they're breathed into. And the spirit, the same spirit that was breathed into the first Adam is breathed into you because of the last Adam. And we are reinstated back to where the first Adam was before the fall. Now I'm going to impact that, uh, unpack that a lot more over the next few weeks. I've got some humorous, some outrageous uh, uh, skits that I'm going to do with you. And uh, listen, if you're going to preach the word of God, you may as well preach it and uh, outdo, uh, <laughs> outdo what the world would do. Amen. So. Uh, I've got some, God gave me some phenomenal visuals. I was all excited yesterday. 
And uh, I am excited to unpack this for you more and more. Galatians chapter 4, the last half of verse 7. Since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Here's another way where the enemy just, he, he steps on the revelation and he squashes it and reduces it to as minimal an understanding as possible. It says, since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And too often, we think of being an heir in the human terms of someone dies and you receive the inheritance. And so you're waiting for that person to kick off so that you can get the inheritance. We look at it from a human point of view. In Galatians 4, the last half of verse 7, since you are his child, you're adopted. Now he breathes the spirit of Jesus inside of you, so now Jesus is in your nature, not a sin nature. And now, since you are his child, he's also made you an heir. And so, like I said, we think of being an heir in terms of receiving the inheritance after someone dies. And we often think, well, when I die, I get to receive the inheritance. I want to make a note here. Anyone familiar with Queen Elizabeth? How old is she now? 96 years old. Amazing. I'm going to make a note. While Queen Elizabeth is still alive, it doesn't stop Prince Philip from enjoying the benefits of being an heir to the throne. While Queen Elizabeth is still alive, it doesn't stop Prince Philip from enjoying the benefits of being an heir to the throne. What am I saying, church? Nobody has to die for us to receive the blessing. Jesus already died, but he rose. We are adopted. The spirit of Jesus, the same spirit of Jesus. Do you know that you have the spirit of Jesus in you and you also have the spirit of the one who raised him from the dead? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. So the spirit of Christ is in you. The spirit of his Holy Spirit is in you. It's amazing when we walk around, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, I am a resurrected son, born a second time, given everything that the first Adam had before the fall, and I'm living in the revelation of what it is finished means, and I am here as long as I'm here on earth, hell will pay, and the kingdom of darkness will have to put up with me because I am filled with the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Because you're a child, you have the inheritance. Prince Philip, before he ever becomes king, Charles will probably become king. The queen had a change of heart, and she's recently said that Prince Charles will one day be king. So Prince Philip has a long way to wait. 
He waited long enough for his grandma to be 96, and she still looks pretty sprightly, if you ask me. I think Charles has still got a few years to wait, but Charles has just been zipped back into the inheritance, and the queen has made an announcement that one day he'll be queen, uh, king. <laughs> Forgive me for that. Father, forgive me, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, he'll be king, and uh, Prince Philip will still have to wait to sit on the throne. But in the meantime, Prince Philip is still enjoying all the benefits of royalty and all the benefits of the inheritance. Stand with me. You see, if you are born again, God wants you to get rid of the mindset of the time period of the law. You're not under law trying to win God's favor. You're under the blood. You already have God's favor. You're not a sinner. You're a son of God with the spirit of God and the spirit of the Holy Ghost living inside of you. He didn't stop at adoption. He got into our DNA and by his spirit and by his breath, he changed who we are. Come on, I want you to get this. Repeat after me, I'm not just a Christian. I am a child of God. I am not just adopted. His DNA, his spirit infiltrates me and influences me. And because I am a child, because I am a child of God, everything that is in heaven and everything that is in God is at my disposal. I live in the inheritance of God my Father. Amen. Amen. And I'm going to enjoy that inheritance now. You see, you can only take hold of by faith what your mind can conceptualize and what your soul can say yes to. It's one thing to understand these things intellectually. But I preach them again and again, and I preach them, Dave, with enthusiasm, with excitement, with vibrato in my voice, because I want people to get emotional. There you go. I was, gonna, I was aiming for your belly, but I'll, I'll give you a fist pump. There you go. I want people to get emotional, because when we believe it emotionally, it imprints and goes deeper inside of us. I live in the inheritance now. I don't have to wait for someone to die. Prince Philip doesn't have to wait for someone to die. He is enjoying his lineage and his heritage now. It's paying off for him. And it's meant to pay off for you as well. I'm not the oppressed. I'm not the oppressed. I'm the delivered. And now I am the oppressor but not of mankind. I am the oppressor of the kingdom of darkness. The gates of hell can't prevail against me or you. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We've got to listen. If we're going to have a great revival, the church has got to have a mindset change. 
I don't go to church. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell, all of the authority, all of the power of hell, it could huff and puff, but it is not going to knock us down. The gates of hell are the things that will not prevail. Everything the devil has stolen is mine to take back in Jesus' name. The blood of Jesus has set me free from the curse and it has brought me into sonship. Come on, repeat that after me. The blood of Jesus has set me free from the curse. I am not cursed. I am a son and I am living in the inheritance right now. That's what God said. How many of you love these truths? Aren't they powerful? I, I've got, look, I got some stuff that the Holy Ghost downloaded to me yesterday, and I am looking forward to just uh, sharing them with you next week and the week after that. But before we go, if you don't know whether or not you're redeemed, if you don't know whether or not Jesus Christ is living inside of you, you can have that happen today. Not only can you know, you can come into this experience today with every eye closed. If you're not sure and you want to be sure, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, I want you to raise your hand right now and say, Pastor, pray for me. Come on, raise your hand. Say, I want to be that person. I want to know Jesus is in me. I don't want to be under the curse. I don't want to be under the kingdom of darkness. I want to be under the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a slave. I want to be a son. If you are not convinced that's where you are, but you want to be there, come on, put your hand up right now. Whether you're watching online or you're here in this building, say yes to Jesus if you want to accept his life in your life. Amen. I want everyone to repeat this prayer. Dear God, I thank you for setting me free. Jesus Christ, I receive you into my life. And I am no longer the butt of the devil's jokes. I am now the trophy of your victory. Father, I thank you. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I choose to live in the revelation. I choose to live in the reality that it is finished. Everything the devil wants to do against me, it is finished because of Jesus Christ. I speak to the powers of darkness and I stand in what Jesus has done and I declare it is finished. And I am free.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's all give the Lord a round of applause. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Praise God.